You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. In recent years, significant achievements have been reached in global health as evidenced by the rise in life expectancy, the drop in infant mortality, and eradication of many diseases thanks to antibiotics, better hygiene, and education. Yet, as today's guest, Tom Bullocky warns there are some disturbing and challenging headwinds in our future. Tom is the director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations and an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University, and he is the author of a recent book, Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways. Thanks for coming to Dallas and to Texas for the first time. Thanks for having me. It seems to me if the world's getting healthier, we should be euphoric about that. What are some of the issues? We should be euphoric about the world getting healthier. That's, that in itself is good news. And let me start with that good news. The good news is in 1950, in nearly 100 countries, one out of five children before their fifth birthday would perish. That was true in all of South Asia, all of Southeast Asia, most of Sub-Saharan Africa. Today, that happens in no countries. For the first time in recorded human history, Bacteria, viruses, and infectious diseases do not cause the majority of death and disability anywhere in the world. These types of health improvements in the past have been the path to prosperity. So if you believe the economist Robert Gordon, the decline of infant mortality in the United States between 1890 and 1950 is one of the single most important facts in the history of American economic growth. China in the 1950s, really through the 70s, was one of the poorest countries of the world before it began an all-out peasant-based war on infectious diseases that contributed to its eventual economic rise. So getting healthier is good. The challenge that we've seen in the current circumstances is that it hasn't been accompanied by all the broader development that we've seen in the past. And when you don't have that broader social development, a lot of the byproducts from getting healthier, like a rising generation of young adults, fast-growing cities, a shift in health needs to adults, well, those become sources of potential impoverishment and risk instead of prosperity. And that's really what we're seeing today. And life expectancy has really changed as well, hasn't it? Life expectancy in low- and middle-income countries is now 70. HIV just... I mean, it used to be the United States was there at 65, 70, and countries in the so-called developing world were even in the 40s and 50s. Even in some cases below that. So this is a dramatic turnabout. It really has happened mostly in the last 20, 25 years. So that's remarkable. One of the great achievements of humankind. Again, the challenge is when you have progress, sometimes that progress yields new problems. And we need to invest in addressing those problems. And again, the progress is due to what specifically antibiotics, I assume, would be a, a major player. Historically, antibiotics and vaccines played little role in how we reduced infectious diseases in countries like the United States. Nearly 60% of the gains in life expectancy we've had in the United States since 1870 all happened before there were any effective medicines. So it was done mostly through water sanitation and chlorination and social reforms around the pasturation of milk and reducing overcrowded tenements. This is how we used to reduce infectious diseases. And that was effective, but it also led to broader social developments that helped when you had a rising young adult population to take advantage of the broader development. 
The way it's primarily happening now, as you mentioned before, is primarily through medicine, so more effective vaccines, antibiotics, low-cost tools like mm -hmm. oral rehydration. So these have made a big difference in reducing infectious disease. International aid has played a big role. This is all good. The challenge that we have, though, is we haven't seen the same investment in what happens to the children that are surviving because of these programs once they reach adulthood. And that's really where we are at now. And because you, you have the lack of what government infrastructure, health insurance. So you have lack of government infrastructure, lack of health systems. There hasn't been a corresponding investment in educational quality. Countries are having more young adults join the workforce, but not necessarily more jobs waiting for those young adults. So if you look at the World Bank, the World Bank estimates between 2014 and 2050 that low and middle income countries will add 2.1 billion people to the workforce. And at current employment rates in those countries that will have these gains, that's 900 million people without work. Sub-Saharan Africa each year for the next 10 years will add 11 million young adults to its workforce. Currently, Sub-Saharan Africa is only producing one to two million jobs per year. And it's another subject, but of course, that's what you're seeing so much in the Arab world. You have lack of opportunities. Lack of opportunities, and that's precisely the risk, because you're talking about, in many cases, countries with a rising young adult population, not enough jobs. We haven't talked about cities, but there's a big increase in urbanization happening. Countries that have a history of corruption, and in some cases, ethnic tension. And that really is the recipe for instability. So it's important that we start to invest in this rising young adult population because on the positive side in countries like the United States or China, this rising young adult population is the way we became wealthy. So this opportunity does exist, but you have to invest in it. And we're at a moment now where it's really important that we move but forward. But wealth also provides perhaps the means for certain abuses and you're seeing a rise in non-communicable diseases, obesity, diabetes, we're seeing it in the United States, and then something that concerns me since I have four young grandchildren is this opposition to vaccines that you're seeing, and even in the United States. Tell us a little bit about how do we address these challenges? On the non-communicable disease side, sadly, it's a global problem now. So even in poor countries, you're seeing a dramatic rise in cancer, diabetes, heart disease, chronic respiratory illnesses, these non-communicable diseases, as, as you described them. And in poor countries, it's largely happening not because they're getting wealthier, but because, again, they have more adults, and adults get adult health problems. Hmm. And Pretty, these are adults that would have died 30, 40 years ago. Would have died 30 or 40 years ago, but are developing these, these diseases in much greater numbers at a much younger age than we saw in wealthy countries. So that's what's happening in poor countries, and that is a big cause for concern. On the vaccination side, it is a bewildering problem now that we have these medicines and the ability to have really driven down dramatic declines of infectious disease that unfortunately people aren't taking that risk seriously enough. And you see some resurgences. It's happening largely in unfortunately wealthy populations. So New York is seeing a measles outbreak. You're mm. seeing an outbreak in Washington state of these diseases. I, the UK is in the midst of an outbreak of scarlet fever. So Did, where do you stand on this, say, in the United States? Should vaccines be required? At one point, I thought they were. So there's a history of vaccines being compulsory, so not just simply tied to schooling, compulsory. 
So the United Kingdom, for instance, had compulsory smallpox vaccination, and that was effective in driving down the burden of smallpox, but given that people start to get nervous about a government imposing medicines or social policies on them did lead to some tensions. I do think at a minimum they should be compulsory for school populations. And we've become much too lax about granting exemptions on that. So we're in George Bush's hometown, mm -hmm. and he was so instrumental, and one of the great successes of his administration was PEPFAR, the U.S. President's Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief. Give us a sense of what that accomplished, and are we seeing any changes in the United States' contributions to global health? President Bush deserves an enormous amount of credit for his policies on global health and specifically HIV-AIDS. People forget how audacious of an investment that was to invest uh, at the time initially $2 billion in responding to an epidemic happening in other countries. And what the president is quoted as saying at the time was, how would the world judge us if, if we did not do this? Whatever your party or affiliation is, that's the kind of moral leadership we would like to see more of. That response transformed global health, not only in the response to HIV AIDS, but it established what was possible in responding to global health concerns. And you saw more funding for diseases like tuberculosis or malaria or other of these infectious diseases that we, we've been talking about today. So that really had very much to do with the U.S. response to HIV AIDS. In terms of that funding between 2005 and 2012, funding for global health aid globally increased from $11 billion to $28 billion. That's a significant increase. For part of that time, it was increasing 10% per year. So there is a real surge in global health funding. We've largely stayed flatlined since then. Meaning the U.S. government? The or? U.S. government, but really global health in general, has stayed roughly flat. The good news is there hasn't, despite some discussions about reducing the U.S. expenditure on global health, we haven't seen budgets decline in recent years, but they haven't increased very much. The White House has announced that they're considering rethinking U.S. foreign assistance in general. So this may be very much a live conversation. But we'll it may be like see. other instances like this where the Congress will hold their feet to the fire. So far, Congress has held their ground uh, despite a couple of budgets which have proposed cuts. But one does worry, you know, with it coming up repeatedly, whether that will remain the case. The United Nations is often maligned. Has the World Health Organization been politicized? And if so, how? So the World Health Organization has benefited historically from being a fairly practical-minded institution. For much of its history, it actually had a, a very strong reputation. The World Health Organization was involved in the smallpox eradication program, which was responsible for human eradication of a, of a disease. So there is really a lot of respect for it. Historically, its mission has expanded over time, and there have been some tensions about how it has expanded as it's sought to take on issues more tied to poverty and social determinants of health as opposed to mm. just medically driven responses or clinically driven responses to disease, but still pretty respected. They did receive some criticism during the 2014 Ebola outbreak for being too slow to respond, and they certainly were too slow to respond. To be fair, 
In terms of member contributions from, from countries to the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization has a smaller budget than the New York City Department of Health from its members. There are some voluntary contributions from the U.S. government or the Gates Foundation that have extended that, but those are typically earmarked. So the World Health Organization is somewhat limited by the support they get from countries. So it is by no means as maligned or politicized by the UN, but it has suffered some from a lack of broad-based support that we see for a lot of international institutions. What's the greatest challenge facing global health? I'm going to cheat and say three, but I will say them very quickly. <laughs> Pandemic influenza is one of the few things that can kill tens of millions of people in a year. It's really important that we continue to invest in that space. Antimicrobial resistance, that by which I mean the fact that antibiotics primarily, as well as other antimicrobial medicines, we're becoming resistant to them. That's a great concern. And then I have to be honest, it really is this rise of non-communicable diseases. In some very poor places, it's happening at a speed that's three or four times as fast as anything we've seen in wealthy nations. They're doing a transition that took us 200 years. They're doing it in 40 or 50 years. And that's having a big impact on people at the prime of their lives, heads of households, and it's something to watch. Well, in fact, that's what Michael Bloomberg said about your book in his blurb. Non-communicable diseases are an urgent global crisis that has been largely overlooked with deadly consequences. And he complimented you by calling attention to it and prescribing solutions. Your book can help save many lives. The book is Plagues and the Paradox of Progress by Tom Bolicki. Thanks so much for being with us on Global IQ Minute. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.